Hey, good singing, man. That was fun. I love listening to you guys sing. Blesses me so much. Blesses me so much. Uh, would you mind closing the door, Keith? Or? Thanks. Uh, you guys know I'm, a fr- I'm from America, right? You guys know that? Really? Yeah. Brother, from the southern part. Did you know that, too? You probably knew that, too, huh? Um, um, if, uh, if we read our Bibles, we know that um, there are an awful lot of men who lead very large churches in America who preach a false gospel. Uh, they are false teachers. They preach uh, the health, wealth, uh, name it and claim it, prosperity gospel, uh, which is a blatant contradiction uh, to the Word of God. I love what John Piper says about this. He says, The health and wealth and prosperity gospel swallows up the beauty of Jesus Christ in the beauty of His gifts and turns those gifts into idols. Um, Satan loves the health, wealth, uh, prosperity gospel. Uh, he invented it. And uh, he knows it's only a matter of time before it will blow up in the face of every adherent to that gospel. It's only a matter of time before you get into a scrape, before you get into a trial, before it gets hard in your life. John MacArthur tells the story uh, of a young woman who left his church and went down the street and, and was going to a, a name it and claim it church, you know, one of those prosperity gospel churches. And she was gone for a couple of years and she showed back up in his church. And she, he said, well, he said, what'd you come back for? And she said, well, they won't let me be poor and they won't let me be sick. And uh, that's quite a commentary on that, uh, on that gospel. But God is up front. He's up front in His Word. He says, everyone, everyone, believers included, there will be troubles in this life. There will be persecutions. There will be rejections. There will be difficulties. There will be trials and pain and suffering and sorrow and sickness and death. But God promises one more thing. He says, I'm beautiful enough to swallow up every one of them. You know, it's the whole Romans 8.28 thing. And I, I forgot to share something with you about heaven. Alcorn makes a great assertion in his, in his book, and I think it's, it's very appropriate. Um, he says he believes that when we get to heaven, we're, the Lord's going to show us Romans 8.28 in our life. He's going to show us how God was doing a good thing. Every time it got hard, He's going to show us exactly what God was doing. You know, it's a mystery to us sometimes now. And I love that thought. I think that uh, uh, might well happen in heaven because it would bring glory and honor to the Father. But God says, I'll swallow up every hard thing and I'll make every hard thing work for your good. I'll cause it to work for good. Romans 8, 28. Jesus is better than anything life can give and Jesus is better than anything death can take. And God has uh, bet His His Word and His character on that fact. And you can trust me, beloved. He's going to prove that to be true for His people. We talked last week about overcomers. Uh, God says, my kids are overcomers. The Greek word, anybody remember the Greek word? Nike. Uh, you know it in English as Nike. But it means to prevail, to conquer, to get the victory. We remember uh, 1 John uh, 5, verse 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. What? Anybody remember? Our faith. Our faith in the living God has overcome 
the world. So for real Christians, it's not about Rolexes and Mercedes and stock portfolios and a cabin at the lake. It's not about that. In fact, that's an insult to us. That you would even assert to us as real Christians that that's what our life is about. Our life is about Christ. Colossians 1.16. We were made what? By Him. Anybody know? And for Him. We get that. We know it's not about us. We talk about this a lot in this church. Our lives are not preeminently about us. They're preeminently about the living God. They're preeminently about our Creator. And if we're Christian tonight, it's certainly about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this life is all about. We've set our heart on this beautiful, awesome, compelling God. And <laughs> we're going to Him. We are going to Him. I just want to take a minute uh, as by way of introduction of this great text here in James of, about considering our trials all joy. And I want to talk to you just a minute about one of my favorite overcomers in the history of the church. His name was Adoniram Judson. He was the first American foreign missionary and he went to Burma. In February 1812, he married his wife Nancy. Thirteen days later, they got on a boat for a five-month journey to the Far East. Okay, five months. Burma was a place with no European community. It was hostile to Westerners. Uh, it was uh, a place of crushing poverty, an impossibly difficult language, uh, which Adoniram was going to seek to master so he could translate the scriptures, uh, a culture built around and immersed in idol worship, and a government that would often harass Westerners. In March uh, of 1816... They lost their six-month-old son, Roger, to tropical fever. They were both devastated. Nancy writes, Our hearts are an open wound and bleed for our little one. Yet we still say, Thy will be done, great God. During the war with England, the Burmese arrested Judson and uh, accused him of being a spy. Of course, he wasn't, but that didn't make any difference. They threw him in jail and... Uh, he was set to be executed. He thought he was going to die. At night, they would put him in shackles and hang him upside down. And just, just enough so his head would be touching the ground. Okay? And uh, this went on for 18 months. He fully expected to die. And this prison was filthy, dark, dank, and rat-infested. After 18 months, he was exonerated and released. But shortly thereafter, in October of 1826, his, his wife died of the fever. And six months later, his daughter, his two-year-old daughter, Maria, died of the fever. Judson continued to work, but he slowly went into a depression. At the uh, culmination of this depression, he actually went into the jungle. He built himself a hut. He dug a grave, presumably his own. And he just went out there and stayed for 40 days. Uh, most everybody thought he was most assuredly eaten by, lion, uh, pardon me, by tigers. It was a tiger-infested jungle. But he emerged from the jungle after 40 days, and the Burmese people venerated him after this because in their eyes, this was a miracle because uh, to come out of that jungle that was tiger-infested after 40 days was a miracle. And the Lord used this time to exalt him in the eyes of the Burmese. And he had a great ministry after that. Uh, a few years later, he married Sarah Boardman. In 11 years of marriage, they had 10 children. In that 11th year, that 11th year, Sarah died. And Judson would end up burying five of those 10 children. Beloved, 
This man wasn't thinking about a Rolex or a Mercedes or his stock portfolio. He wasn't thinking about how he could be enriched on the promises of God. This was a man in love with God. And nothing or no thing, no thing could get him off God. No thing could get him off God. He was going to complete the work that the Lord had brought him to Burma to do. In 1840, after almost 25 years of trial, excruciating trial, Judson completed the translation of the Bible into Burmese. You know, it wasn't the prosperity of the gospel that got, Bur- that got Judson through uh, all those trials. It was his uh, very real faith in a very real God. You know, Judson wasn't overly concerned about his best life now. What Judson was pointing out was the Bema seat, right? His best eternity forever. And this is what God calls, his, what, what God calls us to be. To be pointing at the Bema seat and to be looking at eternity. Not being overly concerned about this life. Judson was an over- overcomer. He could not be blown away or blown over. He was a born of God lover of Jesus Christ. And he understood that this life was a stewardship to be lived out before the Lord. He was a man hopelessly in love. He was a, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, he was a heavenly minded man. And I've been asking you these last few weeks, if you call yourself a Christian tonight, are you heavenly minded? Are you heavenly minded? Do you meditate on it? Do you think deeply about it? Do you know that that's where you're going and you're going there fast? Judson was heavenly minded. He was a God-centered man. A man determined to finish with God and nothing could blow him over. He was Romans 8.37 incarnate. Hyper Nikeo. He was an overwhelming conqueror. (laughs) He was an overwhelming conqueror. And this is what God says about His kids. We are Nike. We prevail. We overcome. So as we begin uh, this study here in the book of James, I want to do just a brief background if you'll allow me, on, on the book of James and its author. There's no controversy among conservative scholars. This book was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. He uh, was uh, the son of Mary and Joseph. And again, he was the half-brother of the Son of God. Uh, early on, we know from the Gospels that James did not believe that his, brother, his half-brother was the Messiah. In fact, the, the Gospels tell us that none of the brothers, half-brothers of Jesus, believed that He was the Messiah. And I think, this, this, you know, I think this addresses some of those myths that you hear floating around sometime that Jesus was doing miracles as a young boy. Uh, it's my firm conviction that Jesus never used His divine power until after His ministry, His public ministry, was inaugurated after His baptism. None of His brothers believed that He was the Messiah. No doubt His half-siblings knew that he was extraordinary. Uh, should I say it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, how many times do you think they ask mom and dad, how come Jesus never gets a spanking? <laughs> I mean, you know, this was the sinless Son of God. Obviously, his brothers and sisters knew he was extraordinary, but they did not believe he was the Messiah. So how did James become a believer? The Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, Jesus appeared to James in a post-resurrection appearance. Jesus came to his half-brother, James, and revealed himself to James. 
And we see James and, and the other half-brothers of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, in the upper room as they were waiting for the Spirit of God to fall. So James becomes, ultimately becomes the pastor or the, the lead elder of the very first church in the Christian era in Jerusalem. Uh, we see him presiding over the church council uh, in Jerusalem. He becomes the first pastor. Look at verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Now James doesn't introduce himself. He doesn't say, I'm James, the brother of the Son of God. He doesn't say, I'm James, the pastor of the first church uh, in Jerusalem. He doesn't have to say that. Everybody knows who this James is. There's no question that this is James, the brother, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And this, this book is not unlike 1 John. You know, we studied 1 John last year. And John was just a black and white kind of guy. And that's how he wrote. And James is the same way. There's no hedging. There's no finesse. There's no spin. There's no dumbing it down. Uh, he was a true preacher. He didn't edit God. He loved his people enough to tell them the truth. <laughs> Not very many pastors anymore actually love their people enough to tell them the truth. They love their paycheck more than they love the truth and to tell the truth to their people. But James was not like that. He feared God and he loved his people. For example, first, uh, chapter 1, verse 22. Here's some of James's black and white preaching. Be doers of the Word, not hearers only. Who what? What does James say about Christians who, only, who, who profess to be Christians? They hear the Word, but they never actually do it. What does James say about them? They're deluding, they're deluding themselves. He's actually saying they're not Christians at all. If you don't live it, he's saying you're not a Christian at all. That's what God is saying to us through the book of James. And James is faithful and he loves his flock and he says, hey, if it's not real Monday through Saturday for you, then it's not real at all. You've simply deluded yourself. You've been mesmerized by religion. You're not a, a born of God uh, born again, son or daughter of God. Chapter 2, verse 17 to 26, here he comes again. He's going to hit us in the face again with another one. He says, faith without works is what? It's dead. It's useless. He says, you think you're a Christian? Well, you, if you are, you'll be working. Your works will show that you have faith. Your, your works will show that your faith is real. We're not saved by our works. We understand this from the Bible. But our works give evidence of the fact that we are, uh, we do belong to Christ. James is faithful to uh, make that point. Chapter four, verse four, he says, "Man, if you're if you're if you love the world, he says that's that's hostility toward God. He says if you're a friend of the world, you're hostile to God." He actually uses the word adulteresses. He says you're an adulteress if you uh, love the world more than you love. Uh, the Lord Jesus, 4.14, chapter 4, verse 14. He was faithful to tell His people. He says, hey, man, you're passing through. You need to spend your, your, the few moments you have left on the planet honoring God, serving the Lord. You're passing through. You're a vapor upon the earth. And then in chapter 5, 1 through 6, James warns those who love their money more than God. 
And he warns them about the judgment that they face. So here's a man who's black and white. If God says it, he's going to relay it. Okay? He's not going to spin the truth. He's not going to spin the truth. Don't you love the humility in, in, uh, in chapter 1, verse 1 there? He doesn't say, I'm James, the brother of the Son of God. And I'm the first pastor of the first church ever in the history of Christendom. What does he say? What does he say? He says, I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's he saying? What is the, the Hebrew sense of the word here? It's that I lovingly serve. I willingly and lovingly and, and, and by a voluntary uh, choice serve this master of mine. I love him. That's what he's saying. I love him. Friends, you know what? <laughs> That's the way it's supposed to be with you too. You're supposed to be serving Jesus because you love Him. You cannot not serve Jesus because you love Him. That's real Christianity. That's re and that's how he starts his letter. He says, man, I love this God. I love this God and I willingly give myself away to Him. Real Christianity. Right from the get-go. Right in the first verse. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I love Him and I serve Him. Friends, that's real Christianity. Real Christianity. I love this. I love what he says here. He says that uh, he's a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus. We know what the Bible says. That uh, no man can serve two masters. This, in my view, is a, a not-so-subtle commentary on the Godhead. James is not saying, I serve two masters, that I serve God and Jesus Christ. He's saying, I serve one God, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So it's a commentary, in my view, on the Godhead. I like how he slips that one in on So who's James writing to? He's writing to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. I learned something this week. I always learn a ton of stuff. But something I, I didn't realize is that that first church in Jerusalem, some scholars estimate there were as many as 50,000 uh, converts in that church. As many as 50,000 converts in Jerusalem. So why did they disperse? You guys know why they dispersed. Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8. Stephen was martyred in Acts chapter 7, and then we read this in Acts chapter 8, verse 2. And on that day a great persecution arose against the church of Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. We also find this in verse 3 of Acts chapter 8. And Saul was ravaging the church, dragging men and women off to prison. Now who's Saul? The Apostle Paul, the future Apostle Paul, when God invades his life and takes his heart of stone out of his chest, and he sticks in that heart of flesh, and he changes Paul's life. So James is writing to his own flock that's been dispersed because of Jewish persecution. And I love what I read. Every commentator I read on the book of James, I loved it. And as a pastor, I love this book because it's a pastoral exhortation to his people to really live your faith. And you know what? Um, I bet I exhort you to do that a lot. I mean, I think that probably permeates my preaching as much as anything. For me, I stand up here and I exhort you to really go out there and glorify Christ in your life. Not just what you say, but how you live. And I love it. That's what the first book of the Bible is about. You know, this was in the New Testament. This was the first book written in the New Testament. You guys know that? Around A.D. 45. It's the very, chronologically, the very first New Testament book <coughs> written. And I love that the first pastor of the first church wrote his first letter to his first flock. And he said, man, I want you to live like real Christians. 
And that's my exhortation to you. <laughs> no lukewarm Christianity. You know, live like real Christians. Nike, you're overcomers. God expects you to live like an overcomer. James kept saying it over and over again. This word, <clears throat> this word in his uh, epistle, this word translated doer, it appears six times in the New Testament. Four times are in his book. Okay? So James really, he loved this. And he exhorted his people. He says, hey, I know you're dispersed, but live it. Live it. You're vapor upon the earth. Live it. You're going to stand before God. Live it. You're a steward before God. Live it. You're going to give an account to God. Live it. He loved his people, man. And he exhorted his people. He exhorted his people to, to actually do the word. He says, man, this is what Christians look like. This is what they act like. This is what they talk like. We're going to make our way through the book. This is how they love. This is how they serve. It's a great, great, great book. The Greek word translated doer actually is translated, I was telling the morning congregation, in Acts 17, 28, it's actually translated poet. You know, when I see a word like doer and poet, okay, what's, what's up with that, you know? And so when I see that and I'm sitting behind my desk, you know, I have, a, I have a really simple life. This is what I do. And I love this, right? And uh, I'm sitting there and I, I'm going, what's this about, you know? So I, I, I go and I look, and, and in Acts 17, 28, it's the, the very same Greek word, it's translated poet. So it just stimulates my mind immediately. So I go look up the word poet. And let me tell you what it says. It says, one who is gifted in the perception and expression of beauty. Don't you love that? Isn't that what a real Christian is? Haven't we perceived ultimate beauty? Isn't His name Jesus? And doesn't our life, uh, isn't our life meant to express that beauty we find in Him? I love that. I thought that was perfect. You know what? You're supposed to be a spiritual poet. The way you live your life is supposed to be spiritual poetry. Did you know that? Every time you do the Word, you're a spiritual poet. I love that. Man, we get what's beautiful. We get what matters. Jesus is the most compellingly beautiful being in the cosmos and we love Him. And every time we go out in the world and obey Him, every time we obey Him in our marriage, every time we obey Him in our money, every time we obey Him in our work, every time we obey Him in what we choose to, to put in our minds, the books we read, the movies we watch, every time we obey Him, man, it's spiritual poetry. It's, it's an expression of the beauty of Jesus Christ. I really got off on that one. I really like that one. You know, Jesus is the Logos, right? He's, he's the Word incarnate. And you're supposed to be the same thing. You're supposed to be the same thing. You're supposed to be living the Word out there. And people are supposed to know, hey, that's a Christian. I can tell the way they talk. I can tell the way they live. I can tell the way they serve their, their neighbors and they serve their brothers and sisters and they serve their church. I can tell. It's not religion with them. It's real. It's real. We're supposed to incarnate the Word of God. James says, man, if you don't do the Word, you've deluded yourself. You're not a Christian at all. And friends, I say that to you lovingly. But examine yourself. Examine your profession. If you're not doing the Word, you're not a Christian at all. And James lovingly tells us that fact. I love how the message paraphrases James 1.22. They let the word go in one ear and out the other. Those who are deluding themselves, you know, it says that, man, it just goes in one ear and out the other. They never do anything about it. They don't ever act on it. They never incorporate it into their life. 
You know, they go to church and they hear it, and then they walk out and it's boom, it's gone. People who delude themselves. Look what he says here in verse 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren. You know, he knows that they've been displaced and dislocated. And he knows it's been hard for many of them. And he said, look what he says in verse 2. Man, he, he just hits it right out of the chute. He says, hey, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking, lacking in nothing. It's an accounting term. He says, add it all up. Add it all up. It's joy. It's joy when you encounter various trials. I looked up this, uh, this Greek word translated consider, and I loved it. I learned something, oh, learned something new again. It was so beautiful. It actually has the connotation of having authority over. James is saying, let your joy have authority over your trial. Let me ask you, Christian friend, <laughs> is that how you live your life? He's saying, let your joy rule over your trial. Consider it joy. I love that. Let your joy rule over your hardship and trial. And you guys know this. If you know your Bibles at all, you know that God's Word is replete. It is replete with this command to rejoice and have joy in trials. And I could, you know, we could stay here till the sun comes up and I'd, be cover, I'd still be covering verses in the Bible where God says rejoice, rejoice. But I'm just going to share a couple with you, okay? Matthew 5, uh, verse 10 and 12, Jesus says, Blessed are you when you are persecuted and men insult you and falsely accuse you on my account. Luke chapter 6, 22 and 23, Jesus says, and I love this one, Blessed are you when men hate you. Man, I got a call one time and somebody just blasted me. They called me every name in the book. Pretty much because I was a Christian, right? And I told Karen, man, it shook me up. Karen says, blessed are you. I never forgot that, man. You know, blessed are you. What a perfect thing to say to me <laughs> at that moment. Man, it really messed me up. She said, blessed are you when men speak to you like that. Because if you're staying for Jesus Christ, what an awesome thing. And the joy came. Now let the joy rule over that trial. But Jesus says, Blessed when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and spurn you for my sake. Be glad and leap for joy. Your reward will be great in heaven. Friends, this is how we're supposed to think. It's what we've been talking about the last four or five weeks. We're to be heaven-minded. Heaven-minded. Romans 8, 18, Paul says, this present suffering, These present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 12, 10. You guys know this passage where Paul says... I am well content with weakness and insults and distress and persecutions and difficulties for Christ's sake. Hebrews 10.34 The Jews joyfully suffered knowing that they had a better possession, an abiding one. What was their better possession? It was a heavenly one. They were heavenly minded. They could, they could, they could suffer the plunder of their properties, actually what Hebrews 10 says, with joy. Because this whole God thing was real to them. And He was their possession. Man, you've got to love biblical Christianity. You've got to love it. So, beloved, the, the born-of-God Christian, which is to say the genuine Christian, he is Nike. He is an overcomer. He lets his joy rule over his temporal trials. And this is a, this is a mark of persevering faith in the Bible. 
It's what real Christians do. We persevere. We persevere. And why do we persevere? Is it because we're, we've done all our ordinances and our sacraments and, and we're real religious and we can recite Scripture? Uh, or we went to ch- we've been to church every time in the last four weeks. Is that why we can overcome? What, why can we overcome? Because God's who He is. Because our God is God. We overcome in His strength. We overcome in His power. Friends, when the trial comes, as James is talking about, when the trial comes, you know, Satan wants to overthrow your faith. Satan's goal in your trial is to overthrow your faith. And I know you've seen this. Christians who, you know, men and women who profess to be Christians, and man, the storm comes, and they disappear. You never see them again. You never see them again. You know, if it's not going to be health, wealth, and prosperity, if God's not going to be my cosmic lucky charm, then I don't have any need for it. How many times have you seen it? I've seen it a lot. I've seen it a lot, sad to say. I've seen it. I've seen it a lot. But we, the real Christian, stands on El Shaddai, the omnipotent God. And we stand on Jehovah Jireh, the faithful promise-keeping God. That's how we stand. That's how we overcome. Because God is who He is. Satan means to overthrow your faith. God means to strengthen it. When the hard time comes, God means to strengthen your faith. That's what God's doing. He means to strengthen your faith. You know what Paul said in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 17? Okay, Paul was what? Beaten times without number, he says. Five times he received 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. One time he was actually stoned to death. But what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 4.17? These are momentary light afflictions. Let me ask you, Christian friend, is that the, is that the way it is with you and you, you and Jesus? Man, I've known Christians, professed Christians, and they just they stubbed their toe. And it's just like the end of the world. You know, I've stubbed my toe. Where's God? How come God didn't keep me from stubbing my toe? And that's a metaphor for some small thing that happens in someone's life. And they just get blown away, man. They just, the world blows up. Friends, it's not supposed to be like that. We're supposed to be looking at God. We're supposed to be looking at God in a way that, that, that changes the way we think and the way we react. Paul says, hey, this is momentary. This is light affliction. These, these things are producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He says, I'm not looking at this stuff. What does Paul say? I'm looking at that stuff. I'm looking at the things that are not seen. I'm not going to let anyone steal my joy. I'm looking at God. I'm looking at the golden shore. I'm looking at heaven. What do you think Adoniram Judson was looking at? And Nancy Judson? And Sarah Judson? What do you think they were looking at? Do you think they were hoping that maybe they'd get a Rolex out of the thing? What do you think they were looking at? We know what they were looking at because the title of, of Judson's biography, it comes out of his diary. <laughs> I love it. The title of his biography is To the Golden Shore. To the Golden Shore. They were looking at heaven, man. They were looking at the Bema Seat. They were looking at giving an account to Christ. And man, you know what they, were, you know what they built their whole life around? You know what their whole life was built around? Standing before Jesus Christ and hearing those words, well done. That's what they built their life around. Well done, good and faithful servants. 
So a man who buries two wives and seven children and perseveres. Friends, I can tell you, he's not looking at anything other than the captivating beauty of Jesus Christ. And he completed the work that God sent him there to do. (laughs) I told the morning congregation, man, I could just see Judson encountering one of these prosperity preachers, you know. And these guys saying, hey, Adoniram, all you need to do is think more faith-filled thoughts and say more faith-filled words and your life will be all better. I think Adoniram would have taken a stick after a guy like that. (laughs) After everything he'd been through. Listen, friends, it was real with him. He was an overcomer. And I'm challenging you tonight to have that same kind of mindset. Hey, man, you're probably never going to suffer like he did. But I'm challenging you tonight to be an overcomer. I'm challenging you tonight to be heavenly minded and to be ready at the Bema seat. Judson was looking at God and he was in love with God. Momentary light afflictions. Momentary light afflictions to him. Friends, I told the morning congregation, you're supposed to be the most dangerous people on the planet. How dangerous are you? You're supposed to be dangerous, man. You're supposed to be turning the world upside down. That's the only reason God's left us here. You know, He should just take us on. But He left us here to testify to the sufficiency, the beauty, and the treasure of Jesus Christ. And you and I are supposed to be turning the world upside down one soul at a time. Yeah, you're probably not going to go to Burma and be a missionary. That's probably not... It could happen. Let me know if it does. I want to know about it. It could happen. But you know what? You're just supposed to be sharing Jesus, man. You're supposed to be turning the world upside down. One heart and one soul at a time. That's what you're here to do. You're supposed to be dangerous. You've got the Word of God and the Spirit of God in you, man. Nothing can hold you back. Nothing can hold you down. You are Nikeo. Yeah, Nikeo. You are uh, an overcomer. You are an overcomer. Now, let me me quickly here um, finish this off. Um, I like how the message paraphrases here in verse 2. He says, he's talking about these various trials in verse 2. Various trials, right? And the the message paraphrases it and says this, consider it a sheer gift when tests and challenges come from you at all sides. So James is not just talking about tests that come to, to men and women who are in the ministry. He's talking about the tests that come to you every single day. The tests that come to you in your marriage, with your kids, uh, with your money, with your job, uh, your health concerns, um, in the economy, your trials, uh, uh, you name it. That's what he's talking about. And he's saying you're supposed to let your joy overrule in all of those things. Your joy is to overrule in all of those things. You're not supposed to let anything knock you down. You're not supposed to let anything take your joy. And I'm just going to close with this question to you. That really means I'm going to preach at least five to eight more minutes. But... But I'm starting to close, okay? I'm starting to close. For those of you who watch, you know, look at your watch a lot. Uh, so, I want to ask you this question. God says, count it all joy when the trial comes. Let me ask you, is that real in your life? Is that real in your life? When the trial comes, do you count it all joy? Let me ask you this. How easily or cheaply do you give your joy away? At some point in the day, some upset happens. 
relatively minor. You know, as Paul says, the things that are common to all mankind. How cheaply and easily do you give your joy away? You know, Judson wouldn't give his joy away. I'm not saying, man, and, and, I, and I want to make this clear. I'm not, talking to, I'm not saying that we don't have hard times and we don't weep and we don't cry when we bury our children and we bury our spouse and when, when we suffer loss. We don't, hey, man, we're not immune to crying. We have real heartache. But you know what? We come through the heartache. I love what John MacArthur says. He says, man, when you're in the middle of the trial, you can't exit left or exit right. You can only go right straight through it. And we will come through it because our God is God. Because he's Jehovah Jireh, because he's El Shaddai. But let me ask you, what causes you to give up your joy? Is it uh, when the alarm goes off late and you miss, a, you miss an important meeting? Does that, would you lose your joy over that? What about if there's no hot water in the shower? Would you lose your joy over that? What if, your kids, what if uh, one of your kids ate the last of the cocoa puffs? I mean, would that be, would that, would that be enough for you to lose your, your joy? What about uh, if the car won't start, if you have a flat tire? What if your spouse really hurts you? What if your spouse leaves you? What if your kid really messes up? I mean, really messes up. Would you lose your joy? What if the doctor told you you had cancer? Like we found out last year with my wife. Would you lose your joy? You're not supposed to. Christian friend, you're not supposed to. In every trial that comes your way, God says, let your joy rule over your trial. And I'm just going to close and I'm going to talk about Paul and Silas here. You guys know the great text over in Acts chapter 16. You know, Paul and Silas say, you know, Paul uh, cast a demon out of this, uh, this woman that, that was, you know, telling futures and stuff. And she was making a lot of money for her, uh, her masters. And so the masters... You know, they drug Paul and Silas up before the magistrates and there was a, a, a mob was gathered and, and uh, you know, they beat, uh, they stripped and beat Paul and Silas. They threw them into jail and they put them in stocks. I bet they had no joy left. What do you think? Do you guys remember the account? You remember the account in, in Acts chapter 16? You think Paul and Silas were in, in prison they were going, where's God? How come this is happening to me? I'm an apostle. I'm the apostle Paul. Why would God let this happen to me? Oh, how many Christians do you hear? You know, the small, even the smallest thing. Where's God? Doesn't He love me? You know, was this what Paul and Silas were doing? What does the text say? About midnight, they were singing hymns and praising God. <laughs> These are men who had unassailable joys. They would not give their joy up for anything. They wouldn't give their joy up for anything. Oh, and what did God do? What did God do in their joy? What happened? What did God do uh, when, when, when they refused to give up their joy? What did God do? He sent a, an earthquake. And He freed those men. Oh, and what did God do through these men, these men who would not give up their joy? What did God do through them? He converted a jailer and his household. Friends, do you see, what, you see how important what James is saying? Don't give up your joy. An unbeliever's watching. Is Jesus real when you're in bed in the hospital and the doctor says you have cancer? Is He real then? Unbelievers are watching you. And people get converted because of the way they see you walk through trials. James is telling you, and he's telling me, count it all joy when you 
encounter various trials. And I think Paul and Silas here, they are perfect illustrations of, of what, of what uh, Paul is saying, uh, pardon me, what James is saying to us here. Look just very quickly at verse 4. He says, man, this endurance has its perfect effect, that you may be perfect and complete. Now, he's not talking about sinless perfection. That's not the point. He's talking about a mature faith. He's saying, you're not babies on milk anymore. You're grown-up Christians. You're complete. Your faith is complete. You can't be blown over. You can't be knocked down. It doesn't mean you're not going to hurt and cry and weep at times in our lives. That's not what he's saying. But ultimately, you come through the trial. You come through the trial. Man, Adoniram Judson had a perfect and complete faith. He buried two wives and seven kids. He had a perfect and complete faith. Friends, I just want to challenge you tonight to be an overcomer. And why can you be an overcomer? Because our God is. (laughs) Because our God is El Shaddai, the Almighty One. Our God is Jehovah Jireh, the faithful, promise-keeping God. And I love that Adam read that text out of the Psalms. God says to His people, He says, He says, I'm for you every single day. I am for you. And I just want to ask you, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you are living like God is for you? Listen, friends, if you really believe God's for you, you're going to live differently than if you don't believe God's for you. I promise You'll be a risk-taking Christian if you believe God's for you. You'll, be, you'll live it big. You'll live it radically. You'll be a Hebrews 11 Christian. You'll be living big faith before an unbelieving world. God says, I am for you. So, beloved, when the trial comes into your life, big or small, count it all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let's pray together. Lord God, we have all this power at our disposal. We have it all at our disposal. We have this infinite resource of joy. God, forgive us that we don't use it, that we don't tap into it. Forgive us, Father, that often we don't live like we really believe You're for us. We live so often, I think, many of us, our Christianity is so small that no one around us even knows we're Christian. Father, I don't think this pleases You. I think You've left us here to, to give testimony. To give testimony that Jesus is better than anything this life has to offer. And that Jesus is better than anything death can take. Lord God, may we be faithful. May we be faithful what Brother James tells us here in this text tonight. To count it all joy when the trial comes. That we might practice the presence of God. For in Thy presence is fullness of joy. Lord God, teach us how to practice that presence. May we not be blown over and blown away by simple trials. But Lord, we stand on a rock. Help us to live like we believe it. We love you, great God. Thank you for this awesome promise. Thank you for this this exhortation to us. We are vapors upon the earth. We have only a few moments left. 
to actually live our faith. For in a few moments, we will be with you. Lord God, may we take that seriously. May we take it seriously. We praise you, beautiful Lord. In Christ's name, amen.